Hello and welcome to the KCTS 9 Digital Studios Podcast. I'm Enrique Serna, and I'm pleased to have as my guest, journalist Gwen Eiffel. Of course, Gwen is co-anchor and co-managing editor with Judy Woodruff of the PBS NewsHour. In addition, she is moderator and managing editor of the long-running Washington Week. Both programs air on KCTS 9. Gwen is also an author of the book, The Breakthrough, Politics, and Race in the Age of Obama. In 2004 and 2008, she moderated the vice presidential debates, and she also appears occasionally on NBC's Meet the Press as a political analyst. And Gwen, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you for having me, Enrique. Well, and uh, as we speak, we're uh, here in uh, the Seattle area. So what what brings you to our neck of the woods? Well, we had an opportunity to find a different way of looking at the education story, education testing in particular. I'm interviewing Bill and Melinda Gates about their education reform efforts and also talking to a local activist teacher at Garfield High School who is on the complete flip side of that argument and presenting all the arguments about and the strange bedfellows involving Common Core and testing and over-testing and teacher testing and unions and reform and all of the things which have come together into to be a real lightning rod in this election year especially. So it's kind of a different way of talking about what interests people. Yeah, Common Core is definitely going to be oh, yeah. part of the election issue here. I know that uh, it's become a bit of controversy here mm-hmm. uh, and across the country as well. Do you enjoy getting out of the studio? Oh, absolutely. I, I love my job. Let's play that first. Yeah. I, I love what I do. I love having the opportunity to tell stories that people need to know. On the other hand, I really... Um, feel that it's important to talk to actual people. Um, That's whether you're covering politics or whether you're covering policy and find out whether America is paying attention or whether the world is paying attention. So when I have a chance to do these things, I usually use them as a leaping off point to do other things, to expand my understanding of what people are talking about, what they're thinking. Uh, You know, we don't want to just listen to Donald Trump. We want to hear the people who support Donald Trump and why. We want to explain the phenomenon by talking to actual voters and people. So when we get the chance, both Judy and I flee. We, we <laughs> unchain ourselves from the anchor desk and go as far as we can to talk to real people. Uh, you know, I think that's the thing about journalism. It's uh, um, You can cover policy, you can cover issues, but really it's about what people think out there. Yeah, and if, you, if you're not doing that, if you're only in a bubble, which is really easy in Washington, in which we're all just talking to each other, and we create this horrific echo chamber, and you step outside and discover no one knows what you're talking about. So we have to always kind of test our instincts that what we're interested in is what the rest of the world is interested in, too. Let's talk about uh, some of the coverage that you have done um, over the past year and in, in the incidents that have happened related to um, African-Americans and others, other people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, you, you did town halls. You did uh, a town hall in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did a town hall in Charleston. Yes. Uh, after those incidents, we did a town hall here mm-hmm. in, in our state looking to do more about race, justice, and democracy. Um, what did you find as you were doing those town halls and, and what people are feeling and thinking in particular about race? It, it, is, uh, it is so interesting. Uh, race is one of those issues which is it's not just a hot button. It's something that people actively resist talking about unless you're yelling at each other. So if you put them in a setting 
in which they're not going to be yelled at or they're not going to be judged for what they say and you tell them you want to hear what they have to say, it's amazing what will come out. It turns out we spend all of our time saying, I'm colorblind or I think we can get past that or why does race matter that we're not listening to what people are saying on other sides of the divide. And it turns out it's quite important. So in Ferguson, we got people in a room. We had folks from Dream Defenders who started after Trayvon Martin was killed, young activists. We had a young rapper who was uh, arguing that he, who said to us that he would rather die than ever be arrested by a St. Louis cop. He was sitting next to the U.S. Senator from Missouri, Claire McCaskill. The two of them did not seem to see the solution the same way. She said, you have to get involved in politics. You have to get involved in the process. And he was saying, hell no. But they were next to each other and talking to each other instead of about each other. And so it was a much more fruitful conversation. There were people in the room, there were conservatives, who said, why do you, why do you make this about race? Who went out for a drink afterward with the young activists, black activists, because they wanted to hear each other. There are not that many opportunities for us to hear each other. In Charleston, it was a little bit different because it was very emotional. We were there only three months after the massacre at Emanuel AME Church, and in our audience were some people who were members of Emanuel as, as well as one of, of the survivors of the night, as well as uh, a middle-aged white man who told me he was trying to deal with his guilt about the way he was raised as a white man in South Carolina. And the emotion uh, was remarkable to me. There were people who said, there were, and this was true in Ferguson too, which is that there were there was a lot of unhappiness before this incident. There was a lot of concern from everything from gentrification to joblessness, and that this flashpoint uh, provided them an opportunity to talk about resentment and anger and fear, and not necessarily forgiveness, which we heard so much about coming out of Charleston. They felt kind of imposed upon that we insisted that they forgive so quickly. So it was a fascinating conversation. How did it affect you doing these two conversations? I am very fortunate to be the person who gets to um, provide a way in for this conversation. I always feel come away feeling drained. Um, I'm a black woman. I was raised in this country. I see all of its um, advantages. My parents are immigrants who chose to be Americans and like yours. So when you grow up in a family, especially first-generation immigrants, you see the world another way. But you also are very clear about its flaws. Um, and so seeing the flaws, hearing us talk about them, I've come to believe that our biggest problem is when we don't talk about it, when we just retreat to our corners and our resentments. And so I feel very gratified to be able to be the, the pass-through for some of this. On the other hand, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to look into the face of a young black teenager who doesn't really see a point to any of this anymore. And you want to give them hope, but you don't know if you can. It's, um, if you're a human being, it's a very nerve-wracking experience. When I uh, you know, went to central Washington where I grew up in a uh, very conservative area, uh, and you know, I felt this sense actually of appreciation that I got to go back there mm -hmm. to do this mm -hmm. because this is where I grew up, all of these types of things. But I felt that that draining feeling too as well. And and I see things changing there, maybe not fast enough as I would like them to change and other people feel the same way. But um, I felt this sense of also appreciation that I got to be able to kind of have that 
or, or be the conduit for the conversation. That's exactly, that's yeah. exactly the yeah. word I was reaching for. Yeah. Being a conduit is what we got into this business to do. Mm. But you don't, so often that you're just being um, the stenographer, you're just repeating what you've been told. But to actually be able to step up to that next level and bring your knowledge, your understanding, your humanity, your empathy, and bring that into broadening understanding is so much more than just saying the White House said today. And that's 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 to me is the highest is that kind of a higher and better cause. No, your your father was a minister. Mm-hmm. He was an African Methodist Episcopal minister, which is another reason why Charleston was so close. I um I felt like I knew those people. I recognized that they were part of my growing up. And my brother is also an AME minister. So it's and I am not. I'm an active AME. I have to tell my my, my pastor might be listening. I have to tell him this. But as a result, you, you make a real connection to people, and you also have a moral um, foundation which guides your understanding and your ability to listen. When I travel to college campuses, the question I get asked the most often by young people is, how do you do what you do without telling people your opinion? Mm. And my answer to them, which <laughs> I, that. It ha- I know, right? Yeah, yeah. And that they don't seem to have considered is that, I, if I make it my opinion, if I decide what my opinion is before I talk to you, why should you listen to me and why should I listen to you? Our biggest problem is deciding what our opinions are and then ceasing to listen. They pay me to listen. And in order to do that, I have to suspend judgment, at least for the time I'm talking to you. <laughs> and it doesn't mean I don't have my opinions or my ideas, but it means that's not, that doesn't play a role in the work I do. Did you always want to cover politics? Did you always want to be a journalist? I always wanted to be a journalist. I came to politics later. I wanted to be a journalist because I love to write. I wanted to be, to be more specific, I wanted to be a newspaper reporter, which I was for most of my career. And because I like to write, I like the idea of a byline. I liked asking questions where I felt people would be forced to answer me. I discovered many years later that was not always the case, especially in vice presidential debates. But I also... <laughs> But I also figured out that I could, I could tell a story, and I needed a deadline to tell a story, and they had those in the news business. I didn't even consider television. I dismissed television out of hand, matter of fact. But I worked at four different newspapers before I was um, approached to come work for NBC News. And I got to start at a very high level covering politics. By then, I had covered a couple presidential campaigns, and I had that experience. And... The guy who hired me, Tim Russert at NBC, realized an important thing, which is he could hire someone who knew how to be a journalist and teach them television rather than hiring someone who knew how to talk to a camera but didn't know have another thought in their heads. And so I, I learned, I got into television kind of backwards, but it's uh, obviously it's worked out. I, I suppose Russert was a perfect example of that because he... He'd been in politics. Absolutely. He'd been a lawyer, then in politics. And he and was not, he, that's one of the reasons he believed so firmly that he could hire people from another medium, because he had done it. Yeah. That had to be tough when he passed away. Yeah. It was uh, very, very tough. I still miss Tim every day. Tim was a friend as well as a, the kind, best kind of mentor. He not only uh, dared me to come work in television, kind of taunted me. Um, told me I was a coward if I didn't try it. <laughs> but also when the opportunity came to leave and, and have my own show on, at PBS and work for the News Hour, he also encouraged me to do that because he knew it would be a step up for me. And I was still working under contract at NBC and I couldn't, and I couldn't leave. And he said, I'll get you out of your contract. 
not because he wanted me to leave, because he knew it would be best for me. So that's the best kind of mentor. Um, and I, I was, we were, we were all still in shock. It's been a while. And, uh, and he was a good man, and he added a lot to our profession that we're still missing today. I don't think that Meet the Press has been the same. I mean, no offense to Chuck Todd, but I just, just don't think it's been the same without him. He had big shoes. Um, he, big yeah, shoes to he play. really did. And, you know, obviously he... Uh, he uh, set a standard there with that that program and things. The news hour now. I mean, as you do this work, um, any regrets ever of not, you know, sticking with the commercial side of things? I never have had a day of regret uh, about coming to work in public broadcasting. In part because, I mean, when I left NBC, there were the our idea of a long form in depth segment lasted two and a half minutes. Um, at the news hour, our idea of a short type piece is five minutes. We just have the luxury of time. We get to tell the story. We get to go a little bit deeper. If someone points at us and says, why don't you tell this story? We can almost always say, but we did. Um, and it's, and it's, it, we've got this fractured news environment where you can go a million different ways to get your information. You can get it off your phone. You can get it off, you know, whatever just t- ticker just went by under the screen when you were looking at something else. But there also has to be a choice, out, which is fine, by the way. You can get your information anyway. I think that's great. But there has to be an option for people who want to know more, who want to go a little deeper. And it doesn't have to be the broadest audience in the world. I don't need the eyeballs, but I do need the engagement. And the people who watch the news hour are very engaged. Are They're, they're really smart. I, I've long since figured out that if I want to talk to voters on the street, you know, we call them man on the street interviews, that I wait for someone to approach me who recognizes me from PBS because I know they're going to be the smartest people there. They're going to actually have been engaged in the topic, whereas you just walk up to someone who is worried about getting in and out of the supermarket, they may not have anything to say. So I, I, I like doing news for people who want to have something to say and, oh, and leave open the possibility that their minds might be changed. I think you'd have the best of both worlds. You not only get to uh, co-anchor the news hour along with Judy Woodruff, but uh, doing Washington Week in Review. It's my you get to do the you say analysis. You, you just dated yourself calling it Washington Week in <laughs> oh, I'm Review. I'm sorry, that's true. I no, did. Yeah, the, that's, yeah, that's, that's right. actually that's great. I actually that's like, how I remember that, it. And that and people there are yeah. people who still call it, you know, the McNeil Lair Report. I yeah, mean, yeah, you, can tell, you can tell you can tell who our viewers yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I it's my sandbox. It's where I go on Friday nights to play with my friends. I invite the smartest reporters I know. They're, they're almost always stimulate me in ways I hadn't considered. They always bring information I hadn't read anywhere or thought anywhere or put it in a context I hadn't considered. And we get to, and they love coming on the program because it's a place where, especially the people from broadcast feel the same thing I feel. They feel like they didn't get finished their sentences. And the people from print get a chance to broaden their audience and get more people than you might necessarily have seen the paper that day. And if you put the right number of people around the right people around the table, it's a really interesting conversation. I, on the nights it works, it's like inviting people in for a cool dinner party. And I try to make it turn out that way most nights. Yeah. It's just a few drinks here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you don't know what's in those glasses. <laughs> I, I want to step back to um, talking about the issues of race here. Um, you know, uh, there seems to be a bit of controversy effect. Even locally, the two Seattle Seahawks players, uh, Michael Bennett and, and Richard Sherman, you know, had differing opinions about Black Lives Matter. 
I just uh, interviewed uh, Sabrina Fulton, who was the, the mother of Trayvon Martin, and I even got a little bit of uh, you know the sense of uh, you know while she she feels like the voices need to be heard and things like that, um, but there seems to be you know we have young people here that that you know interrupted a Bernie Sanders uh, yeah, uh, event here, and and it got us all actually people across the country looking at this. How do you see this? I think we have to remember our history. And our history is that no movement ever happened without some friction. And that when we look at what's happening with Black Lives Matter, which, by the way, is not like, it's like Occupy. There's not like one group. There are lots of people with different sets of perspectives who don't necessarily operate under an umbrella with a leader. And so there's going to be friction. And they don't necessarily agree in approach with, the NAACP or with Dream Defenders or with their, but that was also the truth Truth with the SCLC in, in the Civil Rights Movement, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the NAACP. They didn't agree on approach. They didn't even agree on leadership. No, the Black Panthers. For that the Black Panthers. They were all had different approaches. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X did not see the world the same way. Stokely Carmichael. All of this was, but they all came to have the same general goal. And eventually... They all had the same general achievement. The key is that they're there and that they're speaking. It's okay if they fight or they don't agree on tactics. There are probably people who say, I believe in Black Lives Matter, who think it was a bad idea to yell at Bernie Sanders. There are others who think it was an essential thing to do to yell at the people who generally agree with you. It's healthy. I think it's kind of nice to see young people engaged, whatever that means. Um, I don't... I. We forget that the debate in the 60s was about violence versus nonviolence. That was a much more consequential debate in lots of ways. But uh, we had the head of the NAACP at our Charleston town hall meeting sitting next to a young woman for Black Lives Matter. And he said, she's essential to us, to what we're doing. I just marched from Selma to Washington. That for me was, I told him that seemed kind of old-fashioned to me, but he said that was our way of doing what we needed to do. And they have a different way, and that's okay as long as they're all on a path toward some sort of understanding and don't shut each other out. And I guess, you know, if you look at it, sometimes disruption is a way of getting people's attention. That's the argument. Now, whether disruption for its own sake, just to disrupt, that's that's the debate. You know, is that worth it? You know, in our uh, polling that we did for our uh, town hall on race, justice, and democracy, um, we asked about whether President Obama as you know, uh, whether he's made a difference as far as uh, race relations in America. 46% said he's made it worse. You know, mm-hmm. 29% said uh, kind of about the same. 19% said, you know, it's better. Uh, how do you see his, his role in all of this? Because it seems to me one of the things that he has strived to do as president is try to be kind of president for all the people and not like he hasn't cared about that stuff but that's kind of been his challenge the premise was that he came the job came with the magic wand which was going to allow him to somehow fix our problems not only was it not going to do that but um, for a certain segment of the population who didn't vote for him um, they saw him as a thorn in their side anyway if you know his history, you know he's not the kind of guy who's going to show up with his fist in the air. He's not that kind of activist, um, even though some people try to make him out to be. 
So he was always a calm, cool, collected guy. Um, he also wanted to be an effective president. And I don't think he was going to be effective if he talked about race every day. He was the president of the entire, he is the president of the entire country. So to speak exclusively about race seemed counterproductive. And he knew that about this country. How do you see the, uh, what's going now, what's going on right now with the, the race for president and, and particularly on the Republican side, um, which is kind of an interesting kind of it is mishmash. The, the more the merrier, right? Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Politics is an interesting bird. I mean, there are some people out here who are stirring the pot for the sake of stirring the pot. It gets them attention. Um, it, the, the only danger, and it's, and it's a real one, is that you stir a pot that can't be unstirred and that you, um, you bring the worst of America to bear and I won't name any names but you know there's a certain amount of uh, there's an always an undercurrent of our least best selves in Americans and in humans and the question is do you play to that or do you play to uh, unity and this idea that we all basically want the same things for our children now in our history the people who win are the optimists the Ronald Reagans, the, even the Bill Clintons, they talk about you and your lives and what's going to matter to you and how I can make your life better. That's who gets elected president. Um, hope was, the, was the, the mantra for Barack Obama. And to the extent that we somehow think Americans have become small and mean and inward looking and aren't trying to look outward, we're lose, I, I think we're losing track of who Americans are. Now, all that said, it is October of 2015. We still have another year to go, and we haven't had a single vote cast. So I'm not getting particularly worked up at this stage about who's up and who's down, even though there's a poll every day. Uh, but I do want to pay attention to what this early stirring tells us about who Americans are, and that I think we can apply as the election goes along. Yeah. Um, interesting to see how all of that evolves because it's it's actually got a long ways to go. I know. It, it really I mean, does. And I'm perfectly are. patient to let the voters weigh right. in before we all decide what it, what it means. So 2004, 2008, mm -hmm. you were a moderator for a vice presidential debate. Um, would you like to have the opportunity to either do that again or a presidential debate? Oh, there's no journalist you know who would say, oh, I don't think I'd like to do that, of course. <laughs> it's the hardest thing you ever do. Um, it's a pretty harsh and bright spotlight. I always tell people that if I, looking back in 2004, if I had it to do it again with John Edwards and Dick Cheney, the questions would certainly be different now. And then when you, you, you know, the thing about the Biden-Palin debate so many people were watching right. and so many people had their opinions and it was, and you had to shut your, I had to shut myself off from it in order to get the job done. So I look back on them all now and I think what a great opportunity to do it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, the, it's so hard that I, part of me just leans away from the idea of doing it again, but obviously I wouldn't say no. I remember talking to Jim Lehrer about it. Mm -hmm. Of course he did, I don't know how many 11 times. 11 times. Yeah. 11 times. And the pressure of, it, it's it, well, and part of the pressure is that people want to game the ref. You know, yeah. they want to find a way to get inside your head. So you have to find a way to shut all of that away. Yeah. Otherwise, it works. You know, I, I it's the best part. I hate this sounds silly, but the, one of the best lasting impressions about both of those debates is after both of them, 
Queen Latifah played me on Saturday was, Night Live. And let that. me tell you, it's gotten me so much street cred yeah. with kids um, because she, you know, it was, it's funny. It's hilarious. And how many of us get this? So I, and, and it, it gets attention from young people who otherwise ignore me. So I loved it. The, the sincerest form of flattery. Plus she I was mean, very nice about it. Have you met her? I have met her and I've talked to her about this and she is, uh, she's, she's delightful. She was very yeah. sweet. Yeah. When you watch that, what was that like? It's an out-of-body experience. <laughs> There's no question. Because he doesn't look like you, and it's not saying the things you said, and you can't take it seriously. So people would approach me and say, did you think it was funny? And I'd say, of course I thought it was funny. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is cool. And, was you know, Queen Latifah, let's face yeah. it. That's pretty good. I mean, so, I, it's, I, told some, I told them both. I, it was either Queen Latifah or Kenan Thompson, and I was going to take Queen Latifah every time. <laughs> Being played by a guy in drag is not what you're going for in life. No, I don't think no. so. That would not be good. No. So, you know, here you are in, in your career where, you know, the fact that you and Judy are two female co-leaders mm-hmm. is pretty darn cool. It, it really is, but, you know, um, we are very conscious of it on one level. On the other level, not at all. Because mm. we, our careers came from different places right. to end up in the same spot. And it's great that we ended up to sit next to friends. Because I knew her at CNN. She knew me at NBC. We have friends in common. But it just happened. I mean, it was never part of a plan. You know, this is public broadcasting. We don't have plans. And so when the moment came for us to sit down next to each other, we were aware we were making history, but we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. And the, the truth is, the history of co-anchors of any kind is not a good one. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, you, often they don't, they visibly don't get along. Fortunately, Judy and I are friends and we get along really well. And, we, and mo- most important, we see the news the same way. We have the same, um, we have the same news judgment. And sometimes it just takes a look at each other, and we know what we want to put on the air, what we don't. We don't have to discuss it at length. It's it's actually kind of a sweet deal. What do you tell young people that are thinking about going into this business? Mm. It, it this is this is a hard business now because of all the change. It is, but you know what I tell young people is to embrace that change because they're in exactly the position to do it. I don't tell people to do what I did. Obviously, starting out in newspapers is no longer always the best option, even though there's always going to be a job for a few. Um, And you can tell them to do radio. You can tell them to do television. Those are the three options for us. Now they have a million different options. And as long as they have the underpinnings of what basic journalism is, they can do it in a podcast. They can do it in a blog. They can do it in a million different ways. And there are so many different news news organizations or organizations striving to disseminate the news that you can find a way to tell it. I just think in some ways the opportunities are greater than ever before. We, who have been doing it for a while, just have to think differently about what that is. Yeah, that's a little tough sometimes. It is tough. But actually it's kind of fun because it's like learning new things. And And uh, that's that's the whole point, right? You know, it's like the performers that are at uh, casinos these days. So if they get a a chance to extend their career, maybe we can too. (laughs) You mean we have to go to Vegas? (laughs) Well, why not? Why not? Whatever. Let's go. Gwen Eiffel, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. Uh, of course, we'll always watch you here on the PBS News Hour, along with Judy Woodruff and Washington Week. I won't say Washington <laughs> Week in review, um, but thank you for th- taking the time. And uh, glad you're here in our neighborhood. And uh, keep up the great work. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Enrique.